everybody, and welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives um, with your host, Donna Gore, also known as Lady Justice, and I'm Delilah from Imagine Publicity, um, the weekly co-host here. So today's show is is going to be along the lines of exactly what Shattered Lives stands for. We're not going to discuss a crime and a perpetrator. We we discuss the aftermath. What happened? What happens to family members? What happens to surviving victims of crime? And what resources are available um, to them? So that's the crux of the show today. And Donna, would you like to introduce our guests? Or would you like uh, sure. to? Either um, one. <laughs> uh, well, I'll I'll do my best, Delilah. Thank you so much for um, considering last week. Um, as people may know, I have a a medical issue, but I'm on, I'm on the mend, and I'm glad to be back. Um, this I'm so very happy to have. This is kind of a part two show, as you may recall, um, and we did put the initial show up just yesterday. Uh, we had a wonderful show with. She's Matt Catania of, of uh, Plainville, Connecticut, uh, and Michelle Cruz, our former um, uh, constitutional victim advocate, and Jessica from Survivors of Homicide, speaking about the injustice of the of the murder of uh, a long time ago in the 1970s of Officer Robert Holcomb and the aftermath surrounding that with regard to uh, lack of notification of a parole board hearing and all of the uh, all of the, the the forces that were set in motion there. And we felt that there was so much to this story uh, that I wanted to do a follow-up. And I'm, we're very fortunate to have um, two, two family members, as well as Chief Catania back today. Um, and we're all going to uh, address uh, slightly different roles to the um, painting this picture here. So um, we have Chief Matt Catania from from Plainville, who was very much a force in in uh, bringing the family together and and helping them to achieve um, the outcome they did. And we have um, Mac Holcomb, who is the the son of slain officer Robert Holcomb, and I believe he was just four years old at the time um, when Officer Holcomb was was uh, killed, and now he's a grown man, I believe, with his own own children, and here to talk about victim impact. And we also have his cousin, Maria Weinberger, who is a very um, articulate person and uh, served as a family representative through this whole ordeal, who will be talking about uh, how broken our parole system is here in Connecticut, and some changes to uh, look forward to in the future as a result of their experience. So um, with, that's just a, a brief intro to all of our guests, and I want to say thank you, thank you so much. It's an honor to have all of you, and I think this is going to be a very important show. I totally agree with you, Donna, and I think, why don't we do this? Why don't we go to Chief Catania first, and maybe sure. he can give listeners a um, a background of exactly what happened and where we are from there today, from there to today. All right. Thank you. Thank you both for having me back, and uh, thank you for keeping this issue uh, at the fore. So we go all the way back to 1977, and Officer Holcomb, 
is murdered uh, after responding to a uh, burglary in progress in the town of Plainville, Connecticut. He's the first responding officer. He gets there. Being a 28-year-old, very fit, very active, very uh, gung-ho, a former Marine, two tours of Vietnam. He's a, a guy who doesn't know any uh, type of reverse scaries all forward, and he uh, he engages these two, chases them into a wood line behind the house that had been burglarized, and at some point during the relatively brief foot chase, uh, the suspect, the killer, Gary Castingway, turns and fires one shot at Officer Holcomb, which wounds him but does not kill him. And Robert is incapacitated and laying on his back on the ground. And uh, I'm still touched by the story, if you could maybe hear in my voice. Uh, the killer walks over to him and fires three more shots into his chest, basically executes him. And uh, this is the type of depraved person Gary Castingway is. And uh, as you can imagine, somewhere in January 2015, when I get uh, news through an anonymous email that the killer is going to be paroled, uh, my heart dropped. I, I, at first, I didn't even think this was this was for real. And it took a little bit of digging, and as uh, Maria will be able to uh, elaborate on, I'm sure, uh, we really had to uh, drill down to get to uh, any information about this. And come to find out on January 9th, 2015, uh, the state had given parole to this killer. And uh, that's what brought us, that's what brought uh, myself and Maria together and uh, the Holcomb family uh, really uh, wrapped around this effort. And, uh, you know, it wasn't surprising to me because I, I knew of the Holcomb family, knew the story of Robert Holcomb. Uh, I was a young guy just getting out of school, high school and dreaming of being a police officer uh, when Robert was murdered. I come from a police family, so this had an impact on me long before I was a police officer and, and uh, to this day. So, uh, you know, I became very close to the Holcomb family, and uh, they were very, very much the, the leaders in all of this uh, to pursue the state and find out, how could you let this depraved killer out on parole and and that's what that's what that's where we are today thank you chief mm -hmm. Catania. so uh, what is all right so he was actually paroled and then take us take us beyond that maybe um okay. we can bring yeah, mac yeah. in at this point. point yeah yes yeah uh good morning thanks for having me right and and um you know, I tell people that I spoke at the parole hearing, but actually that's not correct. What I, what I spoke at was the a second hearing, a, a rescission hearing that came uh, a few months later. Um, the reason for that was nobody in the Holcomb family was notified that there was that parole hearing in January. Um, and, and so that was kind of a, a shock to us. Uh, my first contact was uh, a letter from the victim's advocate's office um, just letting me know something was happening and, and to be honest with you, I wasn't really aware that it was any more than just a, uh, a technicality um, or something like that. Then I was contacted um, shortly thereafter by uh, my cousins, um, Maria, and a few other cousins, just letting me know uh, the seriousness of the situation and the fact that there would be a second hearing um, and an opportunity for um, the, uh, the victims, victims' family members to speak. And so I was given an opportunity to, uh, to make a statement um, and given the choice of whether I wanted to uh, just submit a written statement, have somebody else read it, or to uh, actually be present at the hearing and to read that myself, which I, I will say was a, 
a difficult decision for me to make. Initially, I, I thought, well, I, I want nothing to do with this person, and, and so I'm just going to send a letter and, uh, and send it in. And uh, the more that I uh, kind of wrestled with that, I realized um, it was important for me to be there. And I don't know if I can explain that to anybody else, except for me, it was important for me to be there. Um, and if I was going to say the things that I was going to say, I wanted to be present and say them myself. Um, and so it gave me an opportunity to uh, to go before the uh, the state parole board um, and before Mr. Castingway and just talk about uh, my dad and to talk about the impact of his death on our family. Um, thank God we've we've recovered and um, you know as a family we've uh, we've grown into a into a strong and uh, healthy bunch of uh, bunch of people. But um, it clearly had a, a, a real devastating impact on our family. And so the idea that this uh, parole was going to happen and it seemed almost like a, uh, you know, like a no-brainer that they were just going to grant parole and that would be it and no one was even notified was, was really shocking. And it was important for, for all of mm-hmm. us to, to let them yes. know that this had a big impact. Mac. Yeah. Um, Mac, Mac and Matt, can you, can you just share, share with our audience – how did when you found out that they dropped the proverbial ball the first time in, in not notifying you? What was your initial response, and how did you you garner the the, the resources and the forces to come together? I know that Matt, uh, Chief Matt, you you had a lot to do with that. But how did how did it feel, and what did you have certain expectations of the parole board, and you just found as if they totally failed you? Well, I'll tell you, it, basically all I felt was uh, the uh, spirit of challenge. They they weren't going to do this. And uh, it really came together quite easily for me. And I, I don't say that to be cavalier. I mean, uh, the, the Holcomb family representatives that I immediately contacted, Maria being one of them, uh, her cousin Kim and a couple of others who uh, came to the front, uh, they just really were a surge of energy that I was just riding. And and I'll tell you, there was never a period of time in my mind where I didn't think we were going to punch through all of the nonsense and really expose this for what it was. And what it was was really ineptitude on the part of the sitting parole board. And and I've said this publicly, and I've uh, disclosed this in writing. Uh, They were just not well-trained, not well-versed, and if you listen to the tape of their initial parole, and, uh, and by sharp contrast, when we were all sitting there in attendance uh, in March, uh, when it was overturned, much a much different venue and a much different, uh, you know, a line of questioning and reasoning. What, the type of questions that we would have thought we would have heard, or uh, the type of information we thought we would have heard in a January uh, setting, but uh, quite honestly, just so much. Uh, support and so much direction from the family they just weren't going to get away with doing this it, it just right. wasn't to be in the you know again if you listen to the january 9th interview it was like they were interviewing somebody who stole something from a, a retail shop and uh mm-hmm. it just it just was not relevant to the crime it's just and it and it didn't do uh robert justice and so much so much strength was behind that concept that it, it just wasn't going to uh, be laid, you know, let to stand. Right. And, well, and, and Chief Katanje, that's exactly right. Um, on, on the part of the family, 
um, we were shocked to learn, and we were galvanized by your um, by your reaching out to us and informing that th- us that this was going to happen. Because without your intervention, we would not have known. Uh, it would not have been uh, apparent to us that this was the action that the Board of Pardons and Parole had taken. And uh, we certainly agree. The panel was misinformed and uninformed. Uh, it's it's yeah. in one direction to say uninformed is a, is a gentle reminder that they need to avail themselves of the record and understand what it is they're granting when they're granting parole to an individual. But what we learned, unfortunately, from their line of questioning, which was just um, incompetent at, at, yeah. at the least and um, just criminal at best, they they were asking questions as though they didn't understand the nature of the crime. And beyond that, without so much as a as any input whatsoever from any victim of this crime, they asked the criminal how he felt and what he was planning to do. And if he had indeed committed this crime, which he again denied. Um, and there was no, he has already admitted to this crime, but he certainly um, manufactured a response that that put him in the best possible light. And um, without so much as asking anyone, including looking at 30 years' worth of transcripts for different um, legal actions that this case wended its way through, without even so much as a, um, any questioning on their part whatsoever, they accepted his his um, just terrible terribly twisted uh, version of events. Did they, Maria, go ahead. I'm sorry. For for the listeners' benefit, um, how much time was served, and how, I mean, what was his original sentence, and then how much time was served, and how old is this person at this time? And if he, not, that it really matters. He served an indeterminate sentence at the time he was originally sentenced in the. Uh, the early 80s, late 70s. The crime took place in 77, and there was one sentencing, and he later in the 80s uh, received another trial um, and the, the same the same outcome. It's an indeterminate sentence. There was no death penalty at the time. So it is um, up to the parole board whether or not they would like to grant this individual the opportunity to be heard for parole. Um, you know, he is about, I want to say, 75, 74 at this point. We we tend not to focus on him. Let's put it that way. In case you haven't noticed, I prefer not even to acknowledge his name. Um, it, it besmirches the memory of our beloved, you know, uncle and father and, and family member Robert Holcomb to mm-hmm. continually insist on... Um, giving this individual some kind of, of meaning. Um, to me and to many individuals, he is merely um, a murderer, and he's not really deserving of our consideration. How long he served is irrelevant. He uh, took a life, and not only did he, he take a life, he did so in such a heinous and egregious fashion that he, he really doesn't deserve parole, and that was always our point all the way through this process. Don, if I could reflect on a, a thought process that I had during that time, sure. during the mm-hmm. revolution in January 2015. It, in listening to the parole board, it, it almost 
seemed to me that, and, and I have no way of proving this, but it almost seemed like they were caught up in a sort of tidal wave of political permissiveness, this kind of uh, blanket, well, you know, what's the sense of keeping him in? And there's no real need to look at this deeply because this is the way our culture, our society uh, across the nation is going. And maybe that was just me interpreting it that way or that was my perception but it just continued to be fortified in my in my mind that nobody really wanted to do the hard uh, work that it would take to and it really wasn't all that hard it, it just took uh, human interest to to look at what actually happened here and determine that no we really don't want to release our most depraved killers no, our society right. and, is not ready for that. And this, this, um, and I, I think that there's a point to be made there in that this happened in the mid to late 70s, and here we are in 2014 or 15, and oh, well, that was all those many years ago, and, and the guy's in his 70s now, what can he do? So it's like, it's not, you know, they almost dumbed down the severity of the crime, and well, you know, and since this was, somehow linked to this, the new second chance legislation, which Maria will get into later. Um, I, I think there is that, that kind of a mindset. But it sounds to me as if also that they just didn't take the time to read the file. And, you know, they just did a very cursory review, if anything. And I'm wondering, Mac, um, if yeah. I can enunciate the C, um, in terms of you, um, and I know you were four years old when when this occurred then, and here you are. What are you now in your thirties or so? Or well, I was three I, actually. I was about a month shy three. my fourth birthday, uh, and I'm now forty one. Oh my goodness! Well, um, you don't look forty one. I saw it. I saw it on again. But anyway. In the passage of time there, and, and you know, your memories as a small child, and here you are as an, as an adult and, and a father and whatnot, how, how, how difficult was it and did you worry about um, how you were going to paint the picture of your father such that they would take this seriously? And, and how, how did your... Um, emotions change from when you were a little boy and, you know, having, you know, a subset of memories, and then now here you are, an adult man, and missing him on a different level as an adult. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and maybe some of the content of your victim impact statement because we would like to share that with our audience? Sure, yeah. As I say, in my statement, I really wanted to talk about my dad and the kind of person that he was, not only to me and to my mom, to the rest of our family, but our whole community. You know, the fact that he was a police officer in Plainville, and that's the town where he grew up, is not an accident. He was very community-minded and service-minded, and that's just the way he was. As Chief Catania mentioned, uh, he was a, a two-tour veteran, uh, a United States Marine in Vietnam, and that's just the way he lived his life, was uh, serving other people. And I really wanted to, to, um, to make that clear in my statement. Um, a lot of, of the statement, uh, the whole process was very difficult for me because one of the things that I guess I've been able to do over the years is to spend my 
my memory, thinking about my dad's life and thinking about the person that he was and the, the impact that he had on me uh, growing up as a man, and to not dwell so much on his death and the circumstances of his death, because that's, that's really difficult uh, to spend your time dwelling on that. And unfortunately, the whole parole process and the need to go and to speak before a parole board and to, to face uh, my dad's killer puts the spotlight squarely on his death, which is really not what I would have, um, you know, would prefer for me to be dwelling on and for the family to be dwelling on. When the process was over, I have to say, I, I remember just breathing an enormous sigh of relief and feeling like, good, I don't have to think about this anymore. Um, because it, it, that's, it's very difficult for me to spend my time and, and my emotional energy thinking about my dad's death. You know, there were so many great things about his life that I would much rather dwell on and have other people dwell on as, as well. Right. I, I think that's an important distinction, and, and I remember that too because um, although during, during a, a trial and a sentencing you may, now, uh, Matt Catania, you may, maybe you can correct me in this, how much does the the judge or the parole officers actually get to know about about the victim's family in the it, it, there's a pre-sentence report or investigation that they do but when you go to the parole board at least in our our circumstance too had we not had you know big photos of my dad and not spoken from the heart from many different perspectives about who my dad was in life versus death, we were educating them because the whole focus is on the death or the perpetrator. What up, As Max said, what opportunities are there for either the three-judge panel or the jury or, or the parole um, hearing officers to get to know the family? Can you speak to that, Matt Canyon? Well, I found it to be largely dependent on the the court setting, on the criminal charge, on the severity of the crime, etc. I, I have found it to be relevant to who the judge is and what they allow for and don't allow for in the court. I don't know that. I think one of the things we're trying to do uh, is to get some structure, get some consistency in it, and that's what some of these uh, proposed law changes to do, but I don't know that we're anywhere near that yet, and it's been my experience for over 30 years that the court setting could be uh, can run the gamut. I, I can't really speak to any uh, consistency that I have seen. Uh, at times, the the victims speak; they they uh, address the court. They're allowed to speak. They speak from the heart to the judge. They face the uh, the, uh, the the subject or the accused party, or the you know, in this case, the the uh, the killer. But it's it's not a consistent application in my experience. Uh, and what you get to see, though, is in Max's statement, which was so powerful, and I was just so proud to even be in the same room and to and to know the Holcomb family and to know Mac and get to meet him. Uh, it was that good versus evil. And although Max says dwelling on the crime, I, I fully understand that as a family member, and I fully I fully. I get that, but but you have to also take into consideration that the criminal case is all about the violation of law. So that's how we get wrapped around the axle, so to speak, with dwelling on uh, the actual crime. And uh, there's two sides to that issue. It's necessary in the court setting, but 
Max so eloquently uh, spoke and Maria spoke so eloquently at the hearing that it really gave you that good versus evil uh, expose that was necessary to really keep this uh, killer where he belongs. Right, but it, it seems like it's the responsibility of the family members to paint the picture of who the uh, who the the victim really is, because as as you often know, um, even in our case, they they all they try to paint the victim as the evil person. If there's any skeletons in their closet, whoever they're going to come out, you know, dur- during the trial process. So we we want to put our our family member in the best light and say, this is what you don't know about the victim. You know, and that's a heavy burden to bear. But Mac, can you can you speak to what resources were av- available to you once once you heard that you know you were totally left out of the process in the beginning? Um, did, was there was there a victim advocate to help you? Did they give you a template? Did they just say, well, here's the list of six questions that you might want to think about? How did you go about crafting this process, and how long did it take you, et cetera? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just uh, you know add on to what Chief Catania said because he's uh, he's absolutely right, and I just wanted to say that you know I, I hope that the, your listeners understand the opportunity that I had to to speak before the parole board and other members of the family and representatives from uh, of, vit, of uh, victims that was not a given in this case at all if if right. you uh, are putting the timeline together the yeah. parole was yep. granted in January and it was really a tremendous right. effort by many people a letter writing campaign by uh, by Maria and others in the Holcomb family and the influence of Chief Catania to get this second hearing otherwise none of us would have had an opportunity to say anything very <laughs> so important hope- point they were backpedaling so that you know and you wanted to make your your yourself known so you insisted that that you be part of the second process is that not correct um, that's correct. Yes, exactly. Otherwise, that was not. It was not made available to us initially. In fact, we nobody in the Holcomb family, nor uh, Chief Catania or anybody else, was even aware that the that first parole hearing happened until after it happened. The parole was granted, and then, uh, you know, news of that came out, and people said, "Wait a minute, how how come nobody was told that that this even happened?" Um, right. Which is what set uh, the second hearing in place, and and so we're very, very thankful that very that happened. Very important but, point. Right, right. And, um, and as far, you know as far what, as Mac is abs- Mac is right. Um, the current victim's advocate, newly appointed at the time this this was occurring, or relatively new, um, did not reach out to us. We never heard from that office. We heard from victim services, but um, the individual who represented victim services uh, appeared to be working still through the board of pardons and paroles, and that process is is what. What we focused on, uh, the ineptitude in the process, the brokenness of the process, um, we we were not told. We made ourselves aware to the Board of Pardons and Paroles, and even at that point, without intervention um, from through the governor's office and other sources, I don't believe we would be speaking today. I don't believe there would have been a rescission hearing. Um, the information that we utilized in crafting our, our so-called victims' um, impact statements came really from from us, from all talking amongst ourselves. The directions on the victim services site are they're not very helpful. They focus on you know continued impact, which I would submit is irrelevant 
because you certainly uh, suffer greatly at the initial um, moment of the crime, but who can quantify how long that impact um, occurs? To me, it's lifetime, and I may not think about it and dwell on it, as Max said, every day, because I want to focus on the positive and I want to focus on the life of Officer Holcomb and the good that he accomplished in his short lifetime, rather than focusing on this one singular event. I didn't didn't want that to define um, our family, and I didn't want it to define our statements. Um, So what do you think is needed, Maria, with regard to that and directions on in terms of victim services, I mean, what what was glaringly missing for you in that aspect? I'll tell you what was missing. What's missing is an understanding that people are impacted differently. Um, it's almost a cookie-cutter process, and they they have all the power in this process, and that needs to change. For example, the Board of Pardons and Paroles has the sole authority to develop um, the list of victims. So you may identify yourself as a victim, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example. When I called to identify myself as a victim, I was told that I was not a victim, I was not a member of the immediate family, and perhaps I might represent a member of the immediate family, my mother, who was Officer Holcomb's older sister, um, but I myself was not a victim. I also they actually learned said that? Yes, this was the initial conversation, and I learned to my surprise as well that no one takes into account the, the, um, the impact that this has on individuals who are not the immediate family of the ultimate victim, in this case, Robert Holcomb. Robert Holcomb was a a Marine. It impacts the Marines. Robert Holcomb was a police officer for the Plainville Police Force. It impacts the Plainville Police Force past and present. And it certainly impacts all police officers because they are going out to do their job. And in in the process of doing their job, their life is taken from them. That's the ultimate sacrifice. So to de- deny the police department, including Chief Catania, the opportunity to identify themselves as victims of this crime is just terrible. In addition, Officer Holcomb was a trained and competent and commended police officer, and his presence, his presence as a protector of the town, that was taken away from the town. The the time, the effort, the relationships, everything that he spent to develop his skills and aptitude as a police officer were removed from the town. So certainly the townspeople are victims. Certainly the office of the state's attorney that battled this killer so successfully for over 30 years on numerous occasions, and the office of the... um, Chief State's Attorney's Office, Brian Perleski, the state's attorney from that district, was specifically told that he would not have the opportunity to speak before the parole board. So it's a very constrained and constricted um, version of whom the victims may be. And that's problematic for me because I don't Mm -hmm. think you can ignore the ripple effect that a crime of this magnitude has on the state on the community of police officers, on the family, and on others who are who who are suffering as a result of this crime. Right, and I, I think you've spoken to it very eloquently. And as a, I, I think I could just say, as a state employee, as I am, we may have 
you know, we may have a leg up in terms of knowing how government works and, and where, the, where the pitfalls are and whatnot. But um, so I, I think you're absolutely right, whereas Mac with the C going in, this is your first exposure, and you may not, any of us, we may not know what we don't know. Right. And, and that's a disadvantage. But I was wondering if, if any of you, maybe Matt with the T, could speak to what kind of damage control went on and how did, I know that this turned out to be a very high-profile case in the media, and that is very unusual. Um, and what, what was accomplished there? Well, I think, Donna, the, when you say damage control, I think the damage control was really uh, all on the side of uh, the Board of Pardons and Parole. And, uh, you know, you really get to see that municipal state employee reaction to conflict where <laughs> protecting one's job in one mm-hmm. income becomes the primary concern. And, look, I don't fault them for that. I really don't because I have to be open-minded enough. I, I've been I've been in municipal government for almost 35 years. I get it. And let's face it, nobody wants to be hauled out in front of a, a, a group of uh, viewers and, and told they're inadequate or they didn't do their job well. But when it's something this serious, uh, that that has to be sifted through, and we have to get to the crux of the problem, address the problem. And, you know, we have to, uh, you know, so to speak, damn the torpedoes and, and just get down to what we need to to get, get things going in a, a effective direction. But Maria spoke to so many different topics that really brought this all together for us, and I, and I would be remiss if I didn't also piggyback off of her reference to Brian Proleski, the state's attorney. Brian was so passionate about it. I didn't even think to call the state's attorney. I, I was on I was on a mission, and then Brian reached out to me, and he said, hey, I'm with you. And uh, he had Maria and I in the office, and we set up meetings. We had phone uh, conferences. And, I mean, without that type of push, you know how you said you don't know what you don't know? And right. I'll tell you, you, you learn a lot about what's going on by getting all of these other people who are passionate about it involved in it because they they offered perspective that I myself would not have come across on my own and in my own pursuit. So for this, you know, incident, it was really the collective and uh, the state's attorney's office in this incident played a, a very, very, uh, you know, powerful, important role right. in it. Mm. Matt, um, Mac, how do you feel ultimately that you were received um, after you delivered your victim impact statement? And you know, what, what if anything has transpired since then? Have you still uh, have people tried to contact you? What has been the positive aftermath, if you will? Well, I mean, first and foremost, the positive aftermath was that the parole was overturned. So, I mean, that almost goes yeah. without saying, and I, I'm obviously very pleased about that. Um, I really don't know the impact of my words directly on the on the parole board. Um, I can tell you that that second hearing was um, pretty overwhelming with the number of people, the number of police officers from all around the state of Connecticut uh, that attended. They, they weren't there to speak. They weren't allowed to speak, but they just were there in support. Um, and so that was it was uh, tremendous. It must have been overwhelming. It, it, it really was. Yeah, I, I have not really spoken a lot about it with anybody since then. Um, but I can tell you personally, I'm very pleased to have had the opportunity um, just to speak and to represent uh, my family and to re- represent my dad um, in a 
in a in a place like that where I, I just felt like it was necessary to say what needed to be said. Mm-hmm. I yeah that that now when you say it was overturned, do you have to reach? Do you have to return um, it within you know five years or so? What 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 was the ultimate uh, sentence when they said, okay, this this uh, he's he's not being let out now, but you have to be for in our case it was five years, and now it's two years from now. Well, I believe that's correct. Again. Yeah, and and uh, maybe Chief Catania will correct me. I believe that it was not just an indefinite extension of the prison term, but it was a five year extension. Um, no, although, you're correct. It was five yeah. years for him to be able to come forward and request right. uh, parole consideration again. Right. So, you know, his term, he continues to serve the the sentence that he was given, which is, uh, you know, indeterminate life to 25 years to life with, with the indeterminate sentence being the ultimate result. But um, five years, uh, he can again request consideration by the board. Right. I believe indeterminate sentencing was, was changed in 1981, and that was the year that my dad was killed, such that, you know, under our his sentencing as well, it was indeterminate, and our our situation never should have come up for parole consideration either. Um, it was just incredulous. Um, there is a show that I had done previously with Delilah and um, Michelle Cruz uh, a couple of years ago that that people may want to refer to and listen to about how does one get prepared for a parole hearing and as well as this show. I mean, I we're trying to, to I guess, Delilah, is this true? Like, we're trying to build a toolbox here. Um, right. Some, well, you know, and that, right? that brings me to a question, Donna, to you yep. or or to Mac or anyone on the air, because I've, I've not been in, a part of this experience, so I'm kind of bringing ignorance to the table. Um, but hopefully, for the benefit of, of our listeners, what be, I, I'm, I've heard about your case, and I've heard about this case now. How many other cases are there where these people are getting the parole, and the victim's family is not notified? So it just happens because they don't know what to do. Right, and right. it's scary, isn't it? Because, you know, we were very fortunate very that this scary. case was so high profile um, and so put a lot of pressure on the Board of Paroles. Um, but I can imagine that there are other cases out there, and, and someone might be able to speak, you know, with more um, right. uh, detail about you know that. What? But other cases there out there are, that Matt, don't have You're absolutely publicity. right. You're right. right. And right. there are more cases, and we know that, because we've worked with the media. We worked with the state's attorney's office. Um, right from the get-go, in this case, there were there were so many administrative and bureaucratic errors. It was it was astounding. But I'll give you an example of one of the individuals who was who was present the night of the murder in 1977 uh, was a cousin of the killer. His his name last name is Testa, and this is public record, so I'm not disclosing anything. However, he was incarcerated in in Enfield Correctional, and his sentence uh, was without parole, and he was to serve until 2018. And you will, and I'm sure your listeners will be astounded as well, to understand that uh, a mere, uh, it wasn't even a month from the rescission hearing for um, 
Gary Castleway, uh, Rocco Testo was uh, released from prison. And he was released under the new um, early release program that's been implemented in Connecticut. Now, uh, what they're saying is he didn't commit a violent crime. However, he he has served numerous overlapping and continuous criminal sentences since, I'm sorry, Matt, sorry. No, no, Since he has 1977, right. and uh, he's been in- incarcerated at least eight to ten oh. times since that evening, um, when and he was able to save himself from incarceration um, after Robert Holcomb was killed by uh, serving as evidence well. against his uncle, Gary Castaway, and now he's been released from jail under the Second Chance Program, and I, no, just, for one, can't that, understand how that just- would occur. I'm incredulous. Uh, Matt Catania, could you could you tell our audience what the concept of the second chance is, and what what would be the criteria for this cousin of the perpetrator to be let out? Well, I, I can't speak to it uh, in great detail, but I I had had conference with uh, Dr. Pettit and some others who were uh, spearheading. Uh, the the fight against second chance and in a nutshell basically certain crimes would be identified certain criteria would be identified and those criminals if i could give an oversimplification to it it would uh, one of the champion causes to second chance would be minor drug charges but what happens with all of these concepts is they run amok so we start to talk about minor drug charges uh being uh, on the lower end of the pecking order, and then those same political figures, and, and even some in law enforcement, uh, and oftentimes you'll find law enforcement personnel who are politically elected, will go the way of the political tide. So what happens is uh, the low-level crime of, let's say, a small amount of uh, cannabis, marijuana, uh, is a crime that we really don't want to see people uh, locked up for long-term jail sentences. Okay, so we we say we get that. And then out of the same breath, you'll hear someone proposing second chance saying, and drug dealing really isn't a violent crime either. So it, it kind of sprawls out everywhere. And although I can't cite for you chapter and verse what, what the uh, intentions are of Connecticut's political movement, I can tell you that it, it, it does and will sprawl out into areas that the average citizen won't be in agreement with. Someone who cares about the safety of themselves and their family will not think that right. Rocco Testa should be paroled. Well, yeah, the, paroled the other early. thing is, I, mean, I, don't, dealing, I don't know how he, he was, I don't. I really don't understand, and, and maybe one of your listeners or someone out there can explain to us how someone who was serving a sentence and who was not specifically supposed to be released early was released three years early. And and, and he certainly engaged in, in criminal activity uh, during which he was armed, and whether or not he discharged his his uh, gun and actually harmed someone, the intent is certainly there to protect himself and to possibly harm right. others. Well, well no they always slip through the cracks. You know that that that's another one. But to get to get back to what Delilah was asking, I don't, I can't quantify how many how many cases there are where. You know, they never should have come up for parole and, and people were not notified. And I think that's a statistic that we will never know because the parole board will not want to share. In fact, just 
to let you know um, in our last 15 minutes or so that we have here, just wanted to mention one positive thing that came out of our parole hearing and um, something that was was put on the State Constitutional Victim Advocates website when, when uh, Garvin Ambrose was in power, and now he's back in the uh, Chicago area, I believe, is that we championed the policy whereby um, we, you would not have to go on record to identify yourself by name, either by uh, by email or by name on the record, because the, the 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 killer and their family may may be there. They may have some ability to uh, to get to yourself. And as you know, I have somewhat of a high profile online, and definitely didn't want that information to to be let out. Well, with all the back and forth, and due to the Due to the, the the stellar assistance of Michelle Cruz, um, we were able to to get a policy change in Connecticut, whereby when someone comes up for parole, they will never have to identify themselves on the record, either verbally or um, uh, by uh, electronic means. And uh, uh, Ambrose's office did put up a, a posting, but it was left totally silent by the former um, commissioner of paroles, um, um, uh, uh, Erica Tyndall, which I was very disappointed in. So um, I just think they wanted to really keep that on on the lowdown because they they did not acknowledge the the very poor treatment that that we were were given but i think we have to fight so hard and that's that's what is, is the crime in all of this and but with respect to that um i also want to ask um both mac and maria um if you can address um tell us about what, what with with the good with the good help of um, people in the legislature that that cares, and some of the senators that were involved with Dr. Pettit's case, what what was accomplished legislatively that was snuck into the second chance bill, if you will, so that listeners know what what we what are some beginning positive changes going forward. Um. Well, I can I can certainly speak to that if if you'd like. I I had continued um, on behalf of the family. Obviously, this is uh, a personal pursuit of mine, but it's it's certainly on behalf of the Holcomb family. And we continue to say we said at the hearing, we said before the hearing that um, we are working on behalf of all victims of this type of crime in this state and throughout the country. But um, certainly, we were fortunate enough to come to the attention of the Connecticut State Legislature. So um, we had um, Betty Bogus, who's a, the legislative representative from the Plainville District, and Senator Henry Martin, who's, who's um, a Senate representative from the same district as well. And right up to legislative leadership, were involved with Speaking to, to us as a family, Chief Catania was present. The town manager, Robert Lee from Plainville, was, was present. Uh, Brian Perleski, state's attorney, he had some input into um, making our thoughts and concerns known to the legislature. 
so the our thought is that the changes are a start. They are an excellent start, and we are certainly appreciative that this initiative was taken by certain legislative leaders. Um, I'll give you an example. The, the parole board is going to be expanded. There will be more members. Um, one of my concerns about that is 10 of these members are full-time state employees, and just saying, how does that happen? Well, they're all appointed by the governor. Um, I don't really have a problem with that, per se. Um, eight of the members are per diem members, and they receive expenses. However, my concern is um, there's no public vetting of this process. Uh, there are certain there's certain language regarding their education or background or qualifications, making them competent to sit on this parole board. However, when we look at the current, um, and certainly in January, when we look up the, at the makeup of the panel that served on the parole hearing for, for Gary Castingway, um, we certainly know that, that there was um, a level of education in terms of at least the case at hand that was lacking. Mm -hmm. um, so uh -huh. we're not sure how these people um, become qualified to serve. And in that regard, the legislature has added an educational component into their service. Um, on a yearly basis, they're going to receive formal training. Um, you know, again, a, a question arises, who or what entity is responsible yeah. for providing that training? Right. Um, will victims have, be part know, of the process, Maria? I'm sorry? Will, will victims be part of the process? Well, no, and that's our concern is that the, the victims, um, we certainly, they certainly made a, a great stride and a great effort in saying that um, they cannot make a decision without victims uh, making their thoughts known. That's, that's part of the legislation. They have to inform the victims. At least two victims must be informed and at least two victims must be maintained on the list. But again, we go back to our experience, which was um, we we tried to contact the listed victim, which is which is untrue. Uh, the the attempt at contact was c completely um, incompetent, to say the least. Um, they contacted a member of our family who was deceased, and then, as an explanation, said that they contacted her at her work where she had been retired for over 10 years, and when the letter came back to them as undeliverable, they called it good and said, we're all done trying to make uh, due diligence here. And that's that's unacceptable. That's horrible. Um, the, the, the board certainly um, requires that victims identify themselves and stay on the list and continue to update their personal information, which, again, m many people, many folks um, don't have the opportunity to do that. Uh, Donna mentioned that, that she's a state employee and I am a state employee as well, so I have familiarity with the process. But I think that most individuals do not. And right. they simply and don't true. have the resources uh, to make so. themselves aware of the how process. Much, how much advance notice are they projecting to give families? Um, I think we may have had about two weeks. Are they giving? Um, ultimately, 
with with everything that goes on, and I just want to stick in here too that it is vital in many instances as well as this. Had we not hired Michelle Cruz uh, to to uh, represent us to navigate this very difficult process, we may not have had the outcome we did. But people right, may, right, and Michelle may, you know, certainly reached out to us, Donna. She she. Right. She reached out to us. Um, at that point, um, we did feel that we had sufficient um, representation and support to get us through this process. And I felt very confident. Um, yes, I, I mean, I, I worked in state government for many, many years and municipal government as well, so I felt that we certainly had the ability to navigate this process, but she is somebody who could help us, but you really have to step back and say, can people afford that? Can people afford right. to seek out somebody like Michelle Cruz? And and um, I, I know that she's very, very competent. I know that she's um, great about uh, her fees or not charging fees or whatever. That's her, that's her business. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who simply can't afford to do that. Um, you and know, I, I was able that. to take vacation time and pursue this diligently, but there are many people who don't have that that opportunity or luxury, so to speak, to be able to do this. They work full-time. The, the, right. um, my, my mother's statement, as read by my husband, um, who happens to be an attorney, uh, certainly made it clear. We're, we are a working-class family. We are not kind of sitting around waiting for somebody to contact us and then have days on end and multiple opportunities to interact with the Board of Pardons and Paroles, which, I mean, I just I just want to say, um, spectacularly unhelpful. Um, even with these legislative changes, there's no guarantee that uh, they will be any more transparent or inclusive than they were in the past. Uh, there is no transparency in this process whatsoever. They, as a matter of fact, um, they, they attempt to exclude people from the process in their limited uh, definition of who the victims are of each crime. Right. They uh, certainly are down in Waterbury, and when the state's attorney's office sent a representative, a sworn representative with identification, including a badge, down to the office of the Board of Pardons and Paroles, that individual was not allowed in the building. Now, you you made that point, Donna, that people want to protect themselves and that you really might not want to identify yourselves, and I certainly understand that the board is making difficult and possibly dangerous decisions every day. But yeah. to say to another state agency, you not you are not allowed on the premises, uh, that, that smacks of we really don't want it receive what you have to deliver to us, which happened to be a request under the Freedom of Information Act, which the board continues to deny um, information to the state's attorney's office to this day. Well, let's so that says to, to me say, there's, yeah, a, there's a big just, problem. It, it goes on and on. Suffice it to say that we still have a lot of work to do. And I, I, I think that... Um, the many others, it's not just Connecticut. I'm sure in many other states, uh, because this is part of a governmental process, there are just as many uh, frustrations with this. But uh, you know, we're we're chipping we're chipping away at it. I don't know if it's a teaspoon of water in the ocean, but we we do what we can do. You know, 
Um, Mac, I would like you to maybe have some well, uh, some parting words with regard to, um, you know, this whole process and how how important you feel um, victim your to be the voice for your family members through victim impact. And then I, I don't know if you'd like me to say anything further, Delilah. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's it's absolutely necessary. Um, it, it's necessary to to have the victim and the victim's family um, to be notified and to have the opportunity to speak. You know, as I said earlier, um, there's no way that the parole board can know uh, the full extent, uh, the effect of the crime. Um, on people's lives uh, unless they hear it from those people. Um, it can't be, it can't just be read. Uh, it can't be something that's gone over in a brief. It, it really, you need to hear from people. Um, so for me, the opportunity to do that was um, really invaluable. And um, I, I think that there, there should never be a case um, where the parole board has to make a decision without having heard from, um, from the victim's family and from all of those who want to have an opportunity to speak who were affected. As Maria said, that, that list really goes on and on, far beyond just the immediate family. Um, and, and obviously we're never going to have a situation where every person has an opportunity to speak their mind, but at least somebody needs to be able to represent and to say, this is the, this is the person uh, who was impacted. This was, in this case, the person who was killed. Um, and this is the long-term impact of what's happened here. Um, and the parole board needs to be aware of that before they make a decision um, that's really just one-dimensional and one-sided. Well, I I so agree with you um, on you know on every level, and I, I I feel I feel like we're family because we have we have so much in common now, and I hope that I can continue to stay in touch with all of you be, because of this issue. In spite of this issue, I'm very honored. To have you, Matt. Matt Catania, do you have yes. any party comments you'd like to make? Well, you know, I, what comes to mind when I when I listen to uh, the feedback and the information about the changes we're attempting to make is I think I think we are self-limiting in a lot of ways because there's a lot of political tiptoeing that goes on in these issues, and I think we'll see real change when uh, you know the gloves are off and we sort of move forward toward getting to where we need to be because it's the right, uh, you know, this tiptoeing concept goes on and on in, in, uh, at a local level, goes on a state level, goes on a federal level. And uh, we're so afraid of offending one another uh, or, or being knocked out of the, uh, the running for something that we missed the bigger picture. And I'm glad in this case, uh, you know, we saw it through and, and the, the Holcomb family saw it through and, and everything really went the way it should go. But I think to make real lasting change, we have to sort of drop the gloves a bit. And, and, and uh, Donna, thank you for keeping in touch with us. Uh, well, I, I want to continue to do so. Who knows, perhaps in the future there there could be other information that we could impart if people are, are willing to do another show in the future. But what Prior to uh, us winding up the show, just wanted to make mention of my the victim impact service that that I do offer victims. Um, it is a two or three uh, part process in terms of being familiarized with the crime, the family dynamics, and essentially really digging deep into getting to know who the who the family 
member is who the victim is so that I can adequately paint the picture for a parole board uh, or for uh, the sentencing judge or three three-judge panel, many people are at a disadvantage where they're not able to garner the, the, the resiliency, the wherewithal, the time as the Holcomb family have done, or they're just sort of ignored or uh, by, by victim advocates or just not adequately prepared. And so um, if you give me adequate time um, with, a, with a, a, a sentencing coming up or parole board uh, in the matter of many weeks to a few months, um, I'll be more than happy to consider people to be a consultant in this process if people if people need help. And it certainly is a good time investment. It's very economical. And hopefully the one thing I want to say that this can change the, the, the outcome of a, of a sentence by appropriately um, portraying the victim instead of concentrating on the perpetrator. Um, Delilah, what what would you like to add to the mix here toward the end? Well, I think in listening to this show, as a society, we need to take better care of our victims. Um, to me, and and I, I know, again, I'm not, I've not had this experience, but looking from uh, an objective viewpoint, our society tends to take criminal rights into consideration way far beyond what victims' rights should be and are. And um, I would really like to see that switch around. And let's take care of our victims. Thank you. Yes, indeed. So um, with that, um, I I thank all of my guests. I, I'm hoping that you will take the show and, and circulate it among people you know because I think it 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 is of value. Um, and please do keep in touch with with me because I think we can maybe do some other good things in the future. So for this edition of Shattered Lives, I'd like to say thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mac. Thank you, Maria and Delilah, and uh, stay tuned for another edition of Shattered Lights Radio next Saturday. And have a have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, Matt. Bye, bye. Thank you.